The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. You know, there's certainly elements within the administration are quite happy to push for a rolling back of direct electoral democracy. It would be a difficult argument to make without large levels of social conflict and political conflict. But certainly this is, you know, a real political challenge going forward for Indonesia. The government is increasingly confident in its capacity to withstand widespread protests. And I think its chilling of civil society and its crackdown on social media probably increases that confidence. It is Indonesia. The situation is always fluid as elite groups negotiate amongst themselves. But there are real possibilities that the deterioration of liberal democracy may well accelerate in the lead up to the 2024 election. In this episode, an evolving political landscape in post-pandemic Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia's President Joko Widodo is now in his eighth year in power and retains enviable popular support, despite apparent missteps in his administration's handling of the COVID-19 crisis and a pandemic fueled hit to the economy. Meanwhile, Jokowi has kept a tight hold on the political reins, winning the backing of over 80% of parties in Indonesia's House of Representatives, the fruit of the president's continued coalition building, even well into his second term. There's talk of an unprecedented and currently unconstitutional third term for Jokowi. Yet critics point to an erosion of democratic institutions, growing muzzling of opposition voices and even ambitions for a political dynasty. So what is Jokowi really accomplishing with all this political capital? And how does his actual agenda compare to the broader social and political reform he's promised voters all along? Who are the winners and losers in a post-pandemic Indonesia? And who gets a say in an atmosphere in which people seem increasingly afraid to speak up? Joining us for an update on the political wins in Indonesia, Eurasia law expert Professor Tim Lindsay of Melbourne Law School and politics and security researcher Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University. Welcome back, Tim, and welcome back, Ian. Thanks, Ali. Good to be here. Hi, Ali. Good to be back. We we spoke with both of you some 18 months ago here on Ear to Asia about how the Indonesian government was coping with the pandemic, but that was before the spread of the Delta variant, which has had a devastating impact. Ian, where are we up to now as we near the two-year mark of this pandemic? As you said, the Delta variant has had a terrible impact on Indonesian society with widespread infection and death rates, the overwhelming of the public health system and really exposed many of these broader structural problems in terms of of public service delivery in Indonesia. If we're looking at the impact on the national government, I think in many respects, certainly to observers, is exposed really its incapacity to decisively act in this kind of moment of crisis. I believe now, obviously, it's a huge logistical task to vaccinate such a large and geographically dispersed country. But nonetheless, you know, the government's really sort of dithered 
throughout the entire pandemic, in many respects, approaching the pandemic as a kind of irritation, certainly at the initial period, to its broader agenda for infrastructure development. Uh, And really, that's sort of been a characteristic of its response throughout, that it's been a kind of a patchy, piecemeal, and often really contradictory approach with very little sort of sustained coordination at the national level. And very much uh, it's been a case of more proactive mitigation and social assistance going on at different levels of government. So not at the national level, but there's been some relatively competent responses at the provincial level and also down at lower levels of government. But certainly the national government's response has been fragmented and quite self-interested. And that's, of course, had been to the detriment of the Indonesian population and very high mortality rates that Indonesians have suffered through the Delta variant. And in many respects, I think just reflective of the fact that the public health system hasn't been able to cope and people have had to rely on other methods which have failed them in this time. Tim, do you agree with Ian's assessment there, particularly in relation to the national government? Absolutely. There have been two sort of themes running through the government's response to the pandemic. The first has been to prioritise the economy and keep business going at all costs. That's been consistent throughout and it has led to the government being very reluctant to impose restrictions, doing it always only when it's become a state of crisis. The other theme has been a complete lack of transparency in relation to data relating to COVID infections. Indonesia denied that the virus was even present for months, even when it knew it was, and admitted later that it had been covering that fact up. And that lack of transparency flows through into the data that's available now. And it's really impossible to know with any certainty how serious the pandemic is at present. I think it's probably fair to say that it's nowhere near now as bad as it was in mid-July when Indonesia became the global epicentre with around 1,800 deaths a day when Indonesia outstripped India and Brazil. That second wave seems to be passing now. And it seems pretty clear by virtue of the fact that the hospitals aren't crowded as they were a few months ago, that the worst moment has passed. But because testing is so low and so patchy nationally, there really is no nationwide testing scheme that works. It's really not possible to know what the figures are. I think they're managing about 170,000 daily, which is a bit more than Australia does. But remember, Indonesia's population is 10 times the size of Australia. So that rate is absolutely minuscule. Likewise, contact tracing is very poor. We just don't really know. Many people work on the basis that the real infection levels may be 10 times what the government is acknowledging. And it's pretty clear that civil society organisations who work in this area like Lapor COVID and so forth, can demonstrate quite clearly that data coming out of the provinces is simply, and the provinces have their own problems with data collection, but even that material is often not reflected in the national figures. They just don't add up. Likewise, Lapor COVID has identified, for example, just 3,000 people who've died at home in isolation, which is not in the official figures. Health worker data is also inaccurate. In July alone, 445 healthcare workers died, mostly in Java. So, look, it's very hard to know what's really going on, but it's doubtless worse than the official figures suggest. Nonetheless, there is a feeling across Indonesia that the worst of the second wave has passed and life is 
returning very rapidly to normal, tourist travel, social gatherings recommencing, malls are open, shopping centres are open, pubs and restaurants are open in Jakarta, for example. Large-scale restrictions are replaced with small-scale restrictions. Large-scale restrictions are only really ever applied in about four provinces, but now they're generally replaced with small-scale restrictions that are not really very restrictive at all. So the concern now, I think, is that with life returning to normal, domestic travel resuming across Indonesia, many fear there might be a third wave coming. There has to be a reasonable likelihood of that, given the unreliability of the figures, but time will tell. So, Ian, against that backdrop and looking at perhaps the second wave as passing worries about the third wave, but things like the lack of transparency, how do Indonesians feel, you know, how their governments performed during the past 18 months to two years? What's public opinion around the COVID response? You know, one of the kind of interesting things over the course of the pandemic has been this relatively sustained popularity of Jokowi as president. And of course, as we've seen in other parts of the world, incoherent or or lacking responses from national governments has often translated pretty promptly into falling popularity for national leaders. But in Jokowi's case, while there has been a downturn in his popularity, it's remained relatively sustained. And I, I think that points to sort of an interesting kind of dynamic where the president is, despite being, of course, the executive head of national government, is in a lot of people's minds somewhat disassociated from how government actually performs. And Joku has been quite adept at sort of playing this particular game of being in command of the government, but not sort of really fully taking the hit for the failings of the national government, particularly in the context of a major crisis such as COVID-19. There's been, I think, and this is sort of anecdotally speaking to friends and colleagues in Indonesia, a lot of focus on people's attention, again, on the more immediate interactions with government, which of course aren't at the national level, but they're immediate daily interactions with local government. And again, here, I think there's been you know mixed performances depending where you are in the country, some very good responses to the pandemic and subsequently perceptions of local government as useful, as responding relatively well. But yeah, again, at this national level, uh, I think there seems to be a kind of a disjuncture between what they're actually responsible for doing in a context like this and perceptions of the president per se. That doesn't, of course, necessarily reflect the perceptions of other figures within the national administration who I think are quite unpopular, but that Jokowi himself is a bit of a Mr. Teflon has managed to remain popular throughout all of this. And I think that's been a strategy that he's adopted to sort of speak about government as if he's somehow detached from it rather than, of course, being ultimately responsible as the president of the country. Tim, how do you explain the fact that Jaga Wadada has an approval rating that was reported in September of 68.5%, which I think many a world leader would be more than happy with, given the picture that you paint of how the government has handled COVID? How do you match that with that sort of approval rating? Do you agree with Ian about the disconnect? Yeah, Jacobi's uh, job approval rating is at 68.5%, which is absolutely incredible in the Indonesian context, not just because his government has so messed up its response to COVID, spectacularly so, I think, by world standards, but also because his immediate predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, who also had two terms as president, at the start of his eighth year in office was only 462 percent 
So it would have been quite extraordinary in ordinary times for a president to have such a rating going into his eighth year or so of in office, but to be doing so in the middle of this very poor handling by his government of one of the worst crises to hit the country in decades is quite amazing. And I think the disconnect part of it is to do with what was once described as the Jokowi effect, Jokowi's real skill, extraordinary skill at handling his image, managing social media, carefully monitoring the way he appears to the public, and his adept use early in his political career of blusukans or drop-ins. That sort of skill is still quite apparent in the way he manages his public image and presents himself. That's part of it. Another part is, and I think this is increasingly significant, is that the political climate has become more and more repressive and this government is becoming notable for the success of its attacks on civil society, which is muting criticism and creating a situation where critics of the government are afraid to talk. And so the sort of criticisms that you might have expected of Jokowi and his government's handling are not being made publicly in the way they were, for example, under Yuroyono. As the general election in 2024, at which time both the legislature and the presidency will be up for grabs. That may seem distant in 2024, but really it's, uh, from an Indonesian political perspective, getting very close. And the political elites are already moving to position themselves for that event. Now, that means criticism from civil society groups, NGOs, universities, newspapers, social media, the organisations where criticism of government is usually expressed in Indonesia is a threat to those elites. And so we have seen the deployment of the draconian law on information and electronic transactions, the ITE law, which contains defamation and hate speech provisions in this law. The government officials, public officials, have weaponized those provisions and have used them to silence critics or to create this chilling effect whereby critics of the government fear they might well be targeted under this law. There have been quite a number of prosecutions, but perhaps more effective than the prosecutions are the number of civil society critics of government who've been hauled in by the police for questioning, detained briefly, and then eventually released. That is in many ways just as effective as going to trial. So we've also had incidents of civil society members having material remotely inserted on their mobile phones or in their social media accounts, which gets them into trouble with the government and justifies their arrest. They're being taken out of circulation for a period of time, and that's become more and more widespread. So civil society activists who might once have been very outspoken against the government are now being very, very cautious about what they say, where they say, and how they say. Just to give you an anecdotal account of this, Early in Jokowi's term, when you go to Jakarta, you might meet with civil society activists and talk to them about politics, and you might find yourself in a cafe, and they would talk openly and quite critically about government policy and politics and what was going on. The last time I went there, the start of the pandemic, people were choosing quieter locations, and they were being very cautious about who was around them, and they were very careful about what they said and who might be listening. So there has been a really tangible shift in that open 
debate and criticism of government that was pretty standard in Indonesia over the last 20 years. Just in this term of Jokowi's government, it's that chilling effect has become very apparent. And I think that is one of the factors playing into Jokowi's ability to maintain his popularity at such high levels. There's probably a side discussion as to what extent issues around human rights are, in fact, really important to a lot of Indonesians. And I think they certainly are to many activists and many scholars, but I'm I'm not sure that it's necessarily the number one issue in the minds of a lot of Indonesians. But nonetheless, Jokowi has been able to establish himself as almost a sort of a symbolic figure and is analysed and assessed by many people in those terms. I noticed a, a news story the other day that, to me, sort of embodied some of that, where in South Timor, in the east of the country, the local village had crowdsourced money to build a seven-metre-tall statue of Jokowi, which they then hauled in a collective effort. They literally pulled it by rope up a hill to put it up in recognition of the president. And when people ask them, well, why? I mean, this is a really poor part of the country. In fact, it's one of the poorest parts of the country. It hasn't seen any significant material development, uh, certainly over the course of Jokowi's presidency. The response was that it was in recognition of the fact that he'd worn their local traditional dress when he'd given the 17th of August Independence Day address. So it's almost a tragic kind of situation where people have such a low bar of expectation for the president that they're willing to pull their limited resources, people living primarily below the poverty line, in recognition and praise of their leader, simply for the purely symbolic act of recognising you know, their regional dress. I think that helps to explain to a certain extent the kind of expectations that underpin Jokowi's popularity, which are sort of, in many respects, divorced from the core material outcomes of government and that much of the unhappiness is directed and he's happy to allow this to happen is directed elsewhere but not at him per se he's able to weather these kind of storms and to continue with his particular agenda but not to bear any of the political consequences of it directly and what about some of the other voices in the political landscape i mean if i ask first about young indonesians i mean they're a very very big and a growing demographic force do they have a voice you know, they have spaces in which they can voice their opinions. They don't actually have a voice in the substantive running of government. Youth involvement in political parties, for example, is very minimal. Indonesian political parties are notorious for not really having broad youth-based constituencies at all. And so I think, you know, for many young Indonesians, there's a kind of a gap between engaging in social media and Indonesian youth are incredibly adept at using social media to express all kinds of opinions in creative ways but in terms of the actual mechanisms of government and direct involvement in government in any way I think it's very minimal. Let me just jump in there and say that the fact that Indonesian youth which is this hugely important demographic particularly when it comes to elections, are so detached from political party activity and mainstream formal political activity. And the fact that they're resorting to, you know, social media is a key means of communication. That's one of the reasons why a government crackdown on social media and trolling cyberspace in order to control critics is, is so effective in managing the government's reputation. The government's very careful, very, very clever in the way it targets these sort of popular memes and so forth as ways of getting its message home that of what it will tolerate and what it won't. For example, 
taking it outside social media, it gets easily offended by things such as critical T-shirts and posters and wall murals and has deployed police to bring in for questioning people who have printed T-shirts and put up murals on walls critical of Jokowi. In other words, the government is, is aware of what youth culture is and the fact that it is politically significant, even if youth are detached from mainstream formal political activity. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Indonesia political observers, Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University and Professor Tim Lindsay of Melbourne Law School. We're getting an update on the larger political trends in a post-pandemic Indonesia. Tim, we, we were talking about the voice of young people. Can I ask you about the role of religious authorities and parties? Islamic-affiliated organisations are very present in political and social discourse. How are they asserting themselves in the current climate? And to what extent has Jokowi worked to include more moderate groups in his support base? The position in relation to Islamic identity in Indonesia is complex. The starting point is always to remember that under Suharto, for three decades, public expression of Islamic identity was not permitted. Now, once Suharto fell and those restrictions came off, uh, you had a sort of snapback where you had Islamic political identity being mainstreamed in political debate. And of course, in a, in a democratic system, or at least a system where you have elections, that means religious identity very quickly became part of politicking in Indonesia. Now, that has not, in fact, translated into significant power for Muslim or Islamically identifying political parties in the electoral process. They still struggle to get more than about 20% of the vote overall. The system is still dominated by so-called nationalist secular parties to a very great extent. So this rise of Islamic identity accompanied at the same time by a failure in electoral politics, broadly speaking, has pushed many Islamist activists out of the mainstream and into increasingly uh, extreme and conservative bodies. And they have set themselves up in opposition to President Jacobi, who's not seen as, he's a Muslim, of course, but he's not seen as an Islamist. And that dynamic reached its peak around the time of the infamous blasphemy conviction of Jokowi's former deputy when he was governor of Jakarta, then governor himself, Ahok, a Christian Chinese, for comments he made while running for election as governor. And the mass movement that was sparked by conservative Islamist groups around that time brought the biggest rallies onto the streets in Jakarta since the fall of Suharto and led at one point to a march on the presidential palace calling for the removal of Jokowi. So from that moment on, those groups, the groups seeking to implement conservative forms of Sharia in Indonesia, position themselves as enemies of Jokowi's administration. And the elite, I think, closed ranks around Jokowi from that point onwards. And what we've seen since then is the government targeting 
conservative Islamist groups and picking them off one by one. First, it amended a law that gave it the power to ban social organisations without resort to the courts, and it closed down Izbut Tahrir Indonesia, which was a group with the aim of establishing a caliphate, a non-violent movement in Indonesia, but with the caliphate as its objective. And since then, it's banned the notorious Islamic Defenders Front, which was associated closely with the mass rallies against the government. And it has also, one by one, detained, arrested and charged a range of different religious leaders associated with those groups on a range of different charges and put many of them in jail. So this government has now positioned itself against those groups and is carrying out with some effect a policy of removing them really from the political chessboard in Indonesia. Now, at the same time, it has overtly sought to strengthen what it calls moderate Islam, that is not conservative Islam and not liberal Islam, but a sort of amorphous group in the middle that fits with the pluralist identity that nationalist leaders in Indonesia have always, and I think probably correctly asserted as a key to holding the nation together. They're tying these moderate mainstream groups in with their pluralist vision, which has got a lot of nationalist legacy points to it, to position Jokowi very strongly. And it's been highly effective, I think. When we look at that support, and we, we mentioned at the very outset that one of the interesting things to an outsider is how Jokowi, he can't face another election because he can't constitutionally serve another term, at least as things stand. And we'll look at that in a minute. But yet he, he is continuing to build this coalition of support. And as we said, he's very, very comfortably in control of the House of Representatives. Ian, how strong is that support and why does Jokowi work on it? When you're looking at Indonesian politics at that level, there are some dynamics that are quite fundamentally different to what we would have in a country like Australia. And presidents in particular have sought to build broad-based coalitions that include, in a formal sense, coalition partners from other political parties. But coalitions in Indonesia, political coalitions, usually treat non-party actors as equal partners to political parties. So you've seen Jokowi reach out and incorporate some of the larger mainstream Islamic organisations as key coalition partners. And on one level, this is about, you know, strengthening their political power. But, you know, in another sense, it's about a broader formation of a particular socio-political order. And in doing that, there's always been a bit of a simplification. But if you look as a basic mechanism throughout Indonesian political history, governments will adopt a two-pronged approach. They'll seek to incorporate potentially disruptive elements or they'll seek to eliminate potentially disruptive elements. And as Tim was just saying, in terms of the government's response to religious groups and Islamist organisations in particular, there's been on the one hand an effort to incorporate some of those organisations into the broader coalition. That includes, of course, the current vice president, Ma'ruf Amin, who is a, is a conservative Islamic scholar, and that was a very self-conscious effort to sort of co-opt that kind of constituency insofar as he's representative of that. And also the current minister for religion, who whose background is from the Nadarul Ulama 
Uh, and in fact, the head of its one of its paramilitary organizations, so a sort of a militant moderate, but at the same time using a very harsh stick to attack other groups that may be seen as disruptive of the broader configurations of power within the coalition. So re-election is one element, but on one level, that's sort of a relatively minor one compared to the broader process of establishing broad networks between different self-interested groups different sets of socioeconomic interests so that they broadly collaborate and broadly incorporate one another and collaborate to marginalise, if not criminalise, those who may be seen as disruptive of their broader endeavours. I mean, a key feature of Jokowi's presidency has been his focus on infrastructure. And on one level, it's clear that Indonesia needs the development of particular kinds of infrastructure But who's involved and how has been, I think, a key feature of of his presidency. And you've seen some of the sort of rolling backs of democracy in a broad sense, such as the weakening of the anti-corruption, the KPK, Anti-Corruption Commission, really can't be separated, I think, from this broader coalition of interests linked to infrastructure, which, of course, infrastructure is one of the areas that's most rife for corruption in terms of There's been the issuing of massive contracts without tendering processes. There's ongoing conflicts of interest between ministers and senior government officials and companies that are involved in that are receiving contracts and this broader weakening of any sort of external transparency and control. So when it comes back to coalition building, it's not just a sort of a political project aimed at the next election, and and there's some other issues to discuss there, but in the immediate term, it's about consolidating particular networks of socioeconomic interest to collaborate together and to marginalise those social groups or social forces that could disrupt this. I take your point, Ian, that it's bigger than the next election, but let's look at that very specific issue of uh, the next election and I guess the building of the coalition with an eye potentially to changing the constitution, Tim, would you see that as a possibility? I think that until election campaigning starts, Indonesian politicians don't stand for any constituency and they don't have any policy platform. They don't usually during elections either have policy platforms. What they do stand for is one or another elite power grouping. And Jokowi started as a clean skin outsider, at least that's how he presented himself. But he is very much now one of Indonesia's elite. He's absolutely embedded in there as a key player in that elite. And those around him, which is now a very large part of the political elite in Indonesia, as is reflected in the coalition he's developed, which is around about 80% of the legislature, 80% of the political parties, in effect, would like to maintain their position and hold on to their existing power and advantages. And of course, that would be much easier if Jokowi stayed in for a third term. He has set up a distribution and configuration of power across the various elite groups that the majority of them are pretty happy with. He's brought in his strongest opposition in the last election, Prabowo Subianto, and his vice presidential candidate, Santiago Uno, are both within government now. And if he did have a third term, that would be not particularly disruptive to the elite and would be very comfortable, I think. So there is a sense among many in the elite that it would be easy, it would be convenient for them if Joe Coe had a third term. Unfortunately, the constitution doesn't allow that. 
The constitution was amended radically after the fall of Suharto, who'd been in power for 32 years. Before that, they'd had Sukarno as a president for life. So one of the main reforms of the post-Suharto era was to limit presidential terms to two. Now, there have been proposals that have been floated for some years now that the constitution should be amended to change that. And this has been raised again recently to give Jokowi a third term or maybe even more terms. This is quite complex. So just bear with me for a moment. To amend the constitution, a sort of super legislative body called the MPR, which is made up of the National Legislature, the DPR, and another regional representatives body, they have a joint sitting and that forms the MPR. And the MPR needs a vote of two-thirds in order to amend the constitution. At the moment, if Jokowi's coalition held solid, that's quite a big question for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but if, if he's 80% of the legislature held solid and it sat with this regional representatives body, he would only be about 14 people, 14 members short of the two-thirds majority needed to amend the constitution. Now, how do you keep a coalition together in Indonesia where there's no party whip system and people routinely cross the floor in every vote? The answer is it's usually done through the trading of favours and money. So amending the constitution for a third term would be a very expensive exercise, literally speaking. It would have to be a very solid deal in place. There'd be, have to be a lot of payoffs and benefits for a lot of people. But probably the government could get the extra 14 people that it would need in order to get that through. So a constitutional amendment is a real possibility. It's not impossible. The thing against it is that the last time they did it, it dramatically reinvented the Indonesian political system in a way not seen since the 1950s. It's a Pandora's box where every issue is potentially on the table, including the role of Islam in, in the state and so on. So politicians are very nervous about another amendment process, which is why nothing's happened since 2002. To do this, the government would need, the people who want the amendment would need to be absolutely certain they have a very tight control on the NPR and what's happening. So nobody's going to do it unless the deals are all in place to have a rock-solid and very controlled majority that would deliver what they want. But it's not quite as simple as that because I think the MPR would demand concessions from the government. And what would those concessions likely be? Well, this is another idea that's also been floated around, which would probably require an amendment as well, which is to reinstate a thing called the broad guidelines of state policy. Now, this is basically a five-year plan that was used under Suharto, and it set the policy for five years. And the president was then made responsible for implementing it. And that meant, and this is the, the critical bit, that the president was therefore answerable to the MPR. And he had to give an accountability presentation or speech to the MPR. And if they didn't like it, they could sack him. Now, they never sacked Suharto because he completely controlled the MPR, which is the problem with that system. But they did remove one president, Habibi, who they rejected his accountability speech and that ended his campaign for re-election. So it is potentially very significant. If the broad guidelines of state policy or something like it were reintroduced, then that would give the NPR control over the president. And because the NPR is controlled by the legislature, it would give the legislature huge control over the president. So this has been proposed in Indonesia by, strangely enough, the chair of the NPR, 
who is also the vice chair of the second biggest party in Indonesia. And it's likely that if they press ahead with a, a call for a third term for the president, the NPR would also call for the return of the broad guidelines, thus giving really giving the DPR effective authority over the president and maybe a power to dismiss him as well. Now, that's a very scary proposition because Indonesia's two-term limit was accompanied by introduction of direct presidential elections, and these are key characteristics of Indonesian democracy. If you remove the two-term limit and then you give the NPR the power to remove the president, the NPR would logically next say, well, look, if we can remove the president, shouldn't we be the ones appointing him or her? And that would take us... A slippery slope. Well, that would take us right back, basically, to the Suharto system. So, for the moment, all these things are possible and they've all been discussed and mooted. You would need the two biggest parties in Indonesia, Jokowi's party, Jokowi's a member of PDIP, and the second biggest party, Golkar, Suharto's old party, to support these ideas for it to happen. And at the moment, Golkar is split by a power struggle over this issue of the power of the NPR. So at the moment, Golkar isn't in, so it couldn't happen. But if they resolve that and the elite decide that they really want Jokowi, then they could do it. Certainly, you know, within this administration, there have been plenty of voices who've questioned core democratic features of the Indonesian system. The current Minister for Home Affairs, Tito, who was the previous Chief of Police, has been very vocal in saying how he thinks that, you know, electoral democracy, particularly at the local level, and that's arguably where there's the greatest level of direct representation of people's sort of aspirations, he's talked about in completely negative terms as being wasteful for money, as encouraging corruption, et cetera, and intimated towards testing out these ideas in the public domain that it would be more efficient, using key issues around the public's dislike of corruption, that it would minimise corruption if you bypassed some of this direct democracy towards system of, of appointment of officials. It's interesting, I think, to note when you look at the plans for the new capital of Indonesia and the government's now pushing ahead with its idea of moving the national capital from Jakarta to a new yet-to-be-developed site in Kalimantan, that the initial sort of governance structures that are being worked out for this new capital would involve a directly appointed official to govern it with no electoral process whatsoever. So I think, you know, there's certainly elements within the administration are quite happy to push for a rolling back of direct electoral democracy. It would be a matter of how they manage potential public backlash, and it would be a significant one. It would be a difficult argument to make without large levels of social conflict and political conflict. But certainly, it's not something that these groups, uh, elites, are hostile to at all. In fact, there's been a lot of chatter about this for quite some time about rolling back direct electoral democracy, including even at the presidential level as well. And I think this is, you know, a real political challenge going forward for Indonesia to protect what remains of direct electoral democracy. And I'd add to that that this is an elite power configuration at the moment that is quite willing to stare down massive protests. It stared down huge protests over the amendments to the KPK law, the Anti-Corruption Commission law, that resulted really in the um, gutting of that Anti-Corruption Commission because it was such a threat to the elite. There were huge protests in the street right across Indonesia. People were killed, injured and so forth. The government refused to move on that. So it is 
increasingly confident in its capacity to withstand widespread protests. Um, and I think it's chilling of civil society and its crackdown on social media probably increases that confidence. So it is Indonesia. The situation is always fluid as elite groups negotiate amongst themselves. But there are real possibilities that the deterioration of liberal democracy may well accelerate in the lead up to the 2024 election as elites try to get themselves in position. Just to mention quickly one more, the proposal is on the table to increase the threshold for parties to sit in the legislature. This would mean that a political party would need to win 5% of the votes in order to be represented in the legislature. And that would mean that the number of parties represented would likely fall from nine to six after the next election, thus greatly strengthening the two biggest parties. So, you know, there's so many other proposals and ideas floating around, almost none of which actually strengthen a liberal electoral democratic system. Well, if you look at it from Jokowi's standpoint, you mentioned in the moving of the national capital to Kalimantan, it's his signature project, if you like, which still seems to be on the agenda. And it would be fair to say, would it not, that his legacy has been seriously impacted by the pandemic. If it's about infrastructure, it's about economic growth, then the last two years has put that legacy well, it's gone backwards. Most definitely. He sort of put all his sort of eggs in this idea of infrastructure development basket, and it hasn't played out how he liked. I mean, the pandemic has been an obvious break on that, but you know, investing so much in this particular construction of development, a very specific idea of development focused on these big infrastructure projects has also brought its own problems. There's been huge issues around the tendering processes to do with big infrastructure projects. There's been a lot of issues around the quality because there's been such a political imperative to do things quickly that the quality of the infrastructure that's being built has been often very poor. I think the moving of the capital to Kalimantan is an interesting one because, you know, it's framed in terms of this sort of infrastructure focus, but the political ramifications of it are huge. If you look at Indonesian political history, Jakarta has been the political stage where so many of the major changes in the country have played out through mass mobilizations of different groups, through the presence of so many competing interests, etc. And what's being proposed essentially is a quarantined off space of governance governed by unelected officials and physically isolated from all of these different social and political groups. So really, it's framed in largely apolitical terms, but I think the political implications for the dynamics of how democratic politics plays out in Indonesia will be massive. And I think that's something that NGOs and civil society are very aware of, that they won't have access to power. They won't have the ability to get the ear of officials because they're sequestered off in a completely different geographical kind of space. Ian, do you think that Jokowi is looking to build a political dynasty? He has, I mean, as the point that Tim was making, he came from outside the political establishment, but he's now facing criticism for supporting his son and his son-in-law's candidacies for major mayoral races. Most definitely. And I think, you know, for political elites, they're maybe not even self-conscious that this is what they do, such as the nature of how political power operates in Indonesia, that it's natural that your immediate family, your immediate networks share in the benefits of your power. Uh, and in this case, it means and is translated into family members. It's translated into business associates all uh, benefiting and gaining political power 
as an outcome of this. So it might not even be a self-conscious thing. It's so embedded in how politics operates at that level in Indonesia. It was almost be surprising if it wasn't the case uh, that, you know, Jokowi's immediate family would also move into the political arena. And, of course, in the case of his son, who's now taken over the position that Jokowi started out in as the mayor of Solo and central Java. You know, he had the backing of the political party and, in fact, the national leadership of the PDIP overruled the grassroots candidate. The trend that we're seeing throughout the country is that the national party elites are basically going against grassroots memberships and grassroots branches in their preferred candidate. So, I mean, that's just another dimension of how the sort of national elite politics is really undermining representative democracy at the more local provincial levels anyway. There's so much to talk about, but sadly, we are uh, close to the end of our time with this podcast. So, Tim, let me ask you, what do you think Jokowi would like his legacy to be? And sitting at this point, heading into the 2024 elections, what do you think will be his legacy? There's no question what he wants his legacy to be because he tells us constantly he sees himself as leaving behind a legacy of vastly improved infrastructure, particularly maritime communications and increased foreign investment in Indonesia to fund all that infrastructure development. He has been a business-oriented president who's put this emphasis on infrastructure as a way of strengthening business and through that, the Indonesian economy. And of course, that makes him very attractive to the oligarchs, the business leaders who control political parties, who effectively control the Indonesian political process. He is a president in that sense working for them, which is one of the reasons why he's been able to cement this extraordinary political basis, almost from nothing, to become the longest serving civilian president since Sukarno. Just on that infrastructure issue, I think he's not going to achieve that infrastructure objective, first because he set his sights too high, and secondly because, of course, the damage to the economy as a result of the pandemic has made it impossible to achieve what he wanted to achieve. Well, unless he gets another term. Well, that's right. And that, of course, is a strong motivation for him personally to want that third term because it's the only way he'll be able to achieve the economic and infrastructure legacy that he claims to want to leave behind him. For example, moving the capital city from Jakarta to Kalimantan, apart from the fact that it will do absolutely nothing whatsoever to move the population from Jakarta with all the terrible problems, infrastructure problems and flooding problems they've got, leaving that to one side, it will cost around $50 billion and there's just no way that that can be achieved within the time frame that Jokowi originally anticipated, not even the first steps of it. So, yeah, that's all a good reason for him to want a third term. Another legacy, of course, as Ian's pointed out, is the creation of a political dynasty. I think that's also going to be very difficult. Um, his predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, also tried very, very hard to do exactly the same thing and failed spectacularly to achieve it. Megawati Sukarno Putri, herself part of a, a dynasty, her father, the first president of Indonesia, is trying very hard for her daughter to take her place. And I think, again, it's unlikely she will succeed in doing that. So dynasty building, even with a third term, maybe beyond Jokowi, but uh, we will see. So that's what he wants as his legacy. What do you think will be his legacy? Is it too early to say? Oh, I think his clear legacy will be democratic regression, which has become entrenched under Jokowi. He made a lot of capital out of human rights 
promises, particularly in his first campaign, none of which have been ever implemented or followed up on. And it is under him that the Anti-Corruption Commission, which is often seen as a litmus test of Indonesia's democratic system, has been gutted by having its reformist commissioners replaced with others, an oversight commission to control it, its wiretapping powers restricted and so forth. If that commission was, as it's often said, to be an indicator of the health of Indonesian democracy, that it's that is a very clear statement of what happened to liberal democracy and human rights and anti-corruption efforts under Jokowi. So I think that will be, whatever else happens, a clear legacy at the end of his rule. Indonesia is still often referred to as being in the Reformasi era, a term that refers to the post-Suharto era, but it's clearly not. It's in a post-Reformasi democratic regression period now. Of course, the election is not for a couple of years, but it certainly seems that the trends have been set. A huge thank you to both of you for your insights. And I do want to ask both of you, where can listeners find more of you, more of your research and your work online if they'd like to explore that further? Tim, where can they go? the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society, the University of Melbourne. Come and join us there. Sounds good. Ian? I'm active on Twitter and often getting myself in trouble with comments on Indonesian politics there. So at iwilson69. And would you point people to somewhere else? You can Google me and I've written a mix of paywalled academic articles, but also other more publicly accessible analysis of Indonesian politics. So if you look on Google or Google Scholar, you can find some of my work there. Excellent. The internet is an amazing place to research our our guests further. Again, thank you both of you for your insights and for your time. And I really look forward to catching up with you, well, hopefully a number of times between now and the next election in Indonesia. Ian Wilson and Tim Lindsay, many thanks. Thanks very much, Ali. See you soon. Thanks, Ali. Our guests have been Professor Tim Lindsay of Melbourne Law School and Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 19th of November 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Calvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.